this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Welcome to Foreign Invader. My name is Conrado Falco III, and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupting American life. Every episode, we take a piece of culture that originated in not the United States of America and talk about its impact in our country and our lives. Let me know if you can picture this. A slender, graceful Latina woman dressed in a long skirt and a small top with ruffles on the shoulders. She is singing and dancing, and she is wearing a head wrap or a hat that's full of fruit. This prevalent, iconic, and in some ways problematic image comes to us directly from Carmen Miranda, the Brazilian superstar that took America and the world by storm in the 1940s. Her career was relatively short, but her legacy remains with us in many, many ways. Our guest today is fascinated with Carmen Miranda, her life, and her legacy. I first met him as a playwright. His plays, Machine Learning and Tooth for Tooth, have been finalists and won some very prestigious awards. Right now, though, he is publishing monthly short stories in his Substack, which is called I Am Not the Real Mendoza. I personally subscribe to this Substack, and I get these stories in my email every month. They are fantastic. Some of my favorites include Some of my favorites include Watch Me, which is about this guy who is obsessed with the comic book Watchmen and launches an internet campaign on behalf of Alan Moore, the author of the comic in order to get him the rights back and that gets out of control. It's a great story that really gets at so many interesting and poignant things about how we relate to mass produced art. Another great story was called Stockholm. And it was about the eternally relatable topic of toxic bosses. I couldn't take my eyes off the story even for a second. I was enraptured. I highly, highly recommend subscribing. The link will be in the show description. But right now, it's time to meet the author behind all this greatness. It's Francisco Mendoza. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for those very kind words about my writing. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited to be talking to you about this great um, topic. So before we get into Carmen Miranda, I like to start by asking the guests where they're from and where they grew up. So the answer to those two questions is different. Uh, I am from Mendoza, Argentina. Um, it's a wine country in um, Argentina. And I lived there until I was 12. Um, and then my family moved to Brazil. So um, I, then I lived in Brazil from 12 to 25. I went to college, I graduated, did some working, and then uh, I moved here at 25 for an MFA. And I've been here for five going on six years now. Damn. <laughs> That's a lot of time. <laughs> I, I am now realizing how long I've been here. I am very excited about this because, well, number one, I also grew up in South America, and two, you are the first guest on the show who, like me, was not born and raised in the oh, U.S., oh. so is there anything that you think is essential that the Americans listening to the show should know about life in South America? Well, I think, 
Uh, something that I first realized when I came to the U.S. I remember distinctly thinking this the first time I came to New York City. Um, American culture is inescapable, I feel, to people who are of not born in the U.S. Um, at least I can speak for 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 the countries that I lived in. Uh, we grow up surrounded by American movies and American music, and it, it's just a part of of our day for daily lives. At, at the very least, the commercial angles of it. Uh, I don't know that I grew up mm -hmm. with like Arthur Miller, but I definitely did, you know, grow up with like Hollywood movies and uh, pop songs and whatnot. Um, but I, I, I sort of realized when I came to New York um, and I was walking around Times Square and there were all these posters for movies and I was like, oh, wow, America doesn't have that. They consume themselves. Because um, sort of, I don't know, I, I feel like being born outside America, you at the very least have an awareness of a larger world beyond. And especially thing that in America, you had like those three layers of cultures. Like I, growing up in Argentina, I had like Argentinian culture. I had Latin American culture. So like people like Shakira, mm. uh, like, you know, she was Colombian. Like she, uh, Juanes was from Colombia, Talia was Mexican. Like, uh, uh, But I knew them because there's a shared Latin American culture. Um, and then there's the America. Mm -hmm. So you have at the very least three layers of culture that sort of tell you like, there's other places in the world. And I remember walking around Times Square and thinking like, you just just living here, you don't necessarily need to know that there are other places in the world because there's not that. Yeah. I think obviously that's a situation that has changed. You know, we have things like Parasite or whatnot lately that do remind mm -hmm. us of the existence of a world beyond the United States. But I do feel like it certainly contributes to a world vision, right? Like there's a they're sort of like, I make what I consume and therefore I only know myself, which I think can be very, you know, it can show up in the way that you interact with people. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. I, I had never thought of it exactly in those terms. Like it's almost, it's almost like a cannibalistic yeah. a way of looking at yeah. a culture. And I think, yeah, and I think it's something that I think people here in America understand that, that their culture is exported and, and it's consumed all over the world. I think you can't really totally grasp, like, I don't know, there's something about, like, when I was a kid watching TV and watching American shows, and then there would be commercials for toys, and I grew up in Peru, and sometimes these commercials would be for Mexico or Argentina for products that I couldn't even go to the store and buy. <laughs> You right. know, I remember there is this, um, I think it's like some sort of yogurt thing in Argentina. I don't know if you know, it's called Serenito. Oh my God. Yes. I, I love Serenitos. <laughs> right. So there was commercials for Serenito all day long <laughs> on the TV. And I was obsessed with, and I was so upset because I couldn't go up to the store and get a Serenito, oh, but no. I just had to deal. <laughs> Why would they even take commercials in a place where you can't go and buy them? That's crazy. Well, I think because a lot of the, you know, cable channels, they would have their oh, Latin American version and they would station themselves, you know, in Mexico or in Argentina and the bigger countries. And then, you know, in Peru, you just repeated. Right, the right, I, I see. It's just... like the, the Latin American Central and then you just like target. Yeah. And then you just beam it out to everywhere. Got it, else. Got it. Wow, that's crazy. I never even thought about that. So. This show is about cultural exchange and culture clash, and I am personally very interested in stereotypes and how cultures perceive each other. So I, as a Peruvian, have assumptions about every country in South America, but I'm interested to hear from you to tell me how the people of Argentina and Brazil 
uh, see themselves. Um, well, it's funny, right? There's a stereotypical image of the Argentinian that I think comes to us from um, not not necessarily Argentinians, but porteños, meaning the people who are from Buenos Aires. Um, and, and Argentina is one of those countries like England, where the capital city also happens to be the most populous one and the one with the concentration of culture. So if you think of America, mm -hmm. you have New York, DC, and LA sort of sharing those duties. There's like the 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 one that makes all the shit, the one that has the money, the one that like has the politicians. <laughs> That's not the case. Brazil actually has that too. There's some Paulo Rio and Brasilia sort of sharing that. But in Argentina, there's only Buenos Aires. Uh, and that can make it so that that the that the country's perceived solely through that lens. Because Porteños are for the most part, wildly hated <laughs> throughout Argentina. <laughs> um, oh, and yeah. the stereotype being that they're very self-absorbed people. And I do think that that happens. I think whenever you live in one of the cities where, where everything is done, sort of what I was saying about America, I think Porteños have that like sort of idea of like, oh, there are other places. Like you come from some other place and they're like, oh, there's other places in Argentina. Well, that blows my mind <laughs> because, you know, because you live <laughs> sort of like self-absorbed. You you are the thing. Uh, if you open any Argentinian yeah. newspaper, uh, that's that the major ones, they're all from Buenos Aires. They report on things that happen in the city as if, you know, that's this is happening to the country. And it's like, no, it isn't. It's just happening to you. Uh, <laughs> so I do think that in, right. in Latin America, there's this idea of like the, the very self-obsessed, very proud, very uh, brash uh, person, uh, mm -hmm. which I do feel. Yeah, accepted. very. You you feel. Yeah, that's definitely the, the, the stereotype that I know about Argentinians. Um, even though I actually I. Sometimes I say Argentinians kind of, or Argentinians are kind of like the French of South America. I feel like that's, you know, like has this kind of Parisian. That's true. Kind of that is true. Them. Well, I guess I guess Paris is also the same thing for France, right? That's sort of like. Yeah, very centralized and very uh, high in their own supply of <laughs> yeah, culture, I yes. would say. Um, um, what was I gonna say? Oh, what about Brazil? Brazilians, I feel like. Um, have this, well, you know, that culture shock I actually lived myself <laughs> because I moved there. Um, and I remember there was this thing that we were told very early on to be mindful of, which is that uh, it was like people don't necessarily mean what they say. And to, uh, specifically, we were given the example of like, if someone tells you that they're, that, you know, you should get together or that you should come by their house, they don't mean it. <laughs> So don't like actually pull out your, you know, your your schedule and be like, oh, that's not what they mean. They are being friendly, uh, but not necessarily in a in a uh, tacit way. It's more just being friendly. And so I do feel like Brazilians have this like easygoing, friendly uh, sort of, which does, which is true. I feel, um, but it is a country. Uh, one of my biggest struggles in Brazil, for the most part, were my personality. I especially not only come from Argentina, which is already a very direct, very like not mindful of feelings kind of culture, uh, but more specifically, I come from Mendoza, which is a very if we like we are next to the Andes. It's a desert. We're like very rough people, and I feel like in Brazil, especially in the workplace, I was told so much like you're just you're too rude. You're <laughs> You know, it, was like, oh, wow. it, it actually brought, you know, it was the difficult thing for me at work. It, it, I remember being in meetings and we were like, 
an ad agency was presenting a campaign and we were all looking at it and like I could tell that not just me but most people thought it was bad like I could I could look around and I said like oh but that but we, that was never said it was always like well you know we're gonna go back we're gonna think about it. and then like someone would become the emissary who would like say in so many words that it needed to be reworked and I was like oh my god like obviously again I think my tendency would have been perhaps too much on the opposite direction of like, this is sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think there was a happy medium to be found there, but I think Brazilians in some ways do live up, obviously not everyone, right? But there is a certain, right. a, a cultural wise, there is this sort of like very sympathetic, very, very friendly uh, and, and, and very adverse to any sort of confrontation. This is all very fascinating for me to hear. Um, I see elements of both those uh, countries in my own experience in Peru. I I mean, where I'm from, Lima, is basically like Buenos yeah. Aires in Peru. It's a very centralized country. And again, people thinking that something that happens in that city right. is happening to the <laughs> whole country. Very, very common. Um, I also think that there is an element of... Uh, I mean, there's the niceness of what you're saying, the not really meaning uh, what you're saying, and also um, being friendly to everyone, then maybe talking behind their backs, <laughs> possibly. Um, and also never being on time, like, you know, come to my house, we'll meet at four, <laughs> no, but nobody shows up until thing. six. Um, at the same time, though, I feel like, Though very similar to Brazil in, in those sense, but also I feel like in Peru there's a little bit of, of self, perhaps self-hatred or like there's a bit of like everything's fucked in Peru is the mentality. This country is fucked. It's always been fucked. And like, you know, we'll do the best that we can, but like nobody can do it. And looking at Brazil and this image of, you know, what we see is like the music and carnival and everybody dancing and every and I feel like I've always had this kind of jealousy, like why are the Brazilians so happy all the time? And we here are like so uh, angry and like, you know. Um... I would argue, and I hear what you're saying, but actually what you're describing is very true in Brazil. There's actually a name for it. It's called Complexo Viralata, which would translate to a mud complex of Brazilians always thinking that what they have is shit compared to what's out there. Oh. Um, and I, but, I, but I would argue that that is a sentiment that's shared by most of Latin America. Um, even Argentina, mm -hmm. which is a fiercely proud country. Oh my God. Like when I think about like every day before going into class, we would stand before the flag, like reciting some whatever. It wasn't like the, the national anthem, but it was some bullshit like that. And we would like raise the flag. And before we went home, we were like taught to be so proud of Argentina. And even then, I still think that this idea of, of Argentina of like, well, but we should like be in Europe or whatever. We don't, you know, like, oh, we're Latin America. That sucks. Right. I feel like a lot of a lot of our countries, because the relationship to the conqueror was very utilitarian, right? Like all those European countries came in, took what they needed. And when shit got kind of hard, eventually we're either kicked out or left. But we were left with this mm -hmm. impression because of that, like taking, I feel like it creates this impression that the good place is somewhere else. It's wherever that shit is going. <laughs> that's that's where the good place is. <laughs> like a lot of our aspirations, um, I think first to, towards Europe and eventually towards America. And I think you can, you and I are living embodiments of the, you know, the, of, the, of the chasing that, that dream here. But 
I do feel yeah. like there's this, this impression that you are not in the good place. There's a good place that's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I think we should start talking about Carmen Miranda at this point. Um, before we do one last question, what would you say was the most American thing about your childhood? What was the most American thing about my childhood? Um, I actually use this example often. I think Christmas is a very funny example because even though I grew up in a Catholic home and so there wasn't a lot of like Santa talk because you know, we believed baby Jesus would deliver the presents himself. Um, and I don't know if this is the case in Peru as well, but actually the biggest feast for gifts it's three kings not christmas like on christmas we got like i remember this one time i got like a belt <laughs> and then on three kings you got like <laughs> the huge gift uh which is uh, epiphany on uh january 6th but uh but still I'll, an insane amount of christmas decorations even in my home would harken back to a winter right that made absolutely fucking sense because we were in the middle of summer like that was like the hottest time of the year and we were like out there with a pine tree and like some fake snow and i was like <laughs> thinking back on it it makes no sense whatsoever because we're not in the winter there's nothing there's nothing cozy cold about it mm-hmm. uh, but i think it's a, again it's that sort of like image that you get sold of like this is what christmas is supposed to be um and so we celebrated this like cold christmases that made no sense I wonder why does everybody look at me and then begin to talk about the Christmas tree. I hope that means that everyone is glad to see the lady in the tutti-frutti hat. The gentlemen, they want to make me say, see, see, but I don't tell them that. I tell them, yes, sirree. And maybe that is why they come for dates to me, the lady in the tutti-frutti hat. Some people say I dress too gay, but every day I feel so gay. And when I'm gay, I dress that way. It's something wrong with that. No, Americanos tell me that my heart is Let's talk about Carmen Miranda. Um, I gave a little intro of who she is at the beginning because I think even if people don't know her by name, they kind of know who she is. But for people who have no idea, can you tell us who is Carmen Miranda? Well, I think the simplest answer is she's the lady in the Chiquita banana <laughs> because that's true. In fact, I remember like recently we had this thing at work when I was bringing a Carmen and someone said like Chiquita banana and my boss who's also Brazilian was like, no, her name is Carmen Miranda. But it is true. If you look at the Chiquita banana branding, there is a lady that is Carmen Miranda. Um, and it's funny. That's also how I was introduced to her when I was a little kid in Argentina. There was this brand of uh, juice concentrate. Uh, that was called Carioca, which is how you call someone who's from Rio de Janeiro. And um, the brand, the, the the image was this lady with a hat full of fruit, um, which I didn't know at the time, but that was Carmen Miranda. So eventually when I learned about her, I was like, oh, that's who she is. Mm-hmm. But I first learned of Carmen in school. Back now, this, this is in Brazil. We were studying the Roosevelt, uh, no. Yeah, Roosevelt, uh, good neighbor policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carmen is usually talked about as a as a good example of how the United States engaged with this um, good neighbor policy in Latin America and and, and Hollywood helping out mm. with people like Carmen Miranda. So the short answer is that she is actually you know she wasn't born in Brazil; she's Portuguese. Um, but she but her family moved from Portugal to Brazil when she was very young, I think like three years old. Um, and she eventually became very famous in Brazil 
before any of the international things uh, for making a music genre, samba, popular throughout like all social classes. Samba used to be more of a, a lower class uh, genre, more reserved for um, poor people, so to speak. Um, and she's the one who made it popular across all uh, corners of the country. Um, and mm -hmm. she had this very lively um, way of performing. Um, even, even then, uh, her sort of attire, which you described, became popular. She uh, Her first big song was called which would translate as like, what, what is it that the Bayana has, meaning someone from the region of Bahia in Brazil, which is a region that has a heavy African-American, well, African-Brazilian, I guess, population. Um, and they would dress often with the turbans, which, which are part of a, an African religion, Candomblé. And so Carmen was arguably engaging in cultural appropriation when she styled <laughs> that costume. Um, and she used the fruits, which also were a reference to how they would carry uh, baskets of fruits in their heads. Um, and, but, but she made it very popular through that song and through, uh, and, through, and through a movie that featured that song with her dressed in that sort of like white attire with this like fruit turban. Um, it, it became very popular and she became a, an exceedingly successful singer in Brazil um, before she was seen by one of the Schubert's brothers, <laughs> sons, I don't know, Ash, Ash right. Schubert. One of the Broadway Schubert's. <laughs> one of the Broadway Schubert's. Um, she was invited to come to Brazil, to, to the United States to perform on Broadway. Um, it was a review, review style musical, sort of like mus disjointed musical numbers. Um, and there was a lot of political interest in that happening. Um, Obviously, Schubert was doing it for commercial reasons, and so was Carmen. But uh, Carmen was helped by the Brazilian president at the time, uh, Juscelino Kubitschek. No, it wasn't Juscelino. It was um, Getulio Vargas um, sort of sponsored tickets for the rest of her band uh, to come here. And similarly, the United States government was very interested in featuring more artists uh, from Latin America, again, mm -hmm. to sort of foster this quote unquote healthier relationship uh, as compared to something like the Bay of Pigs or the whole right. Cuba. And yeah, and I think maybe some people might not know that friendly neighbor kind of thing, policy of that time. And I think from what I understand, it had a lot to do with World War II and the fact that it was looming or it was happening by the 40s. And America wanted the countries in South America to be aligned with America so that there wouldn't be war and, and you know, that yes. the war wouldn't spread. <laughs> It's a lot of American, a lot of um, Latin American countries were ruled by quasi or totally dictator uh, figures like Getulio Vargas in Brazil or Perón in Argentina. Um, and so there was this idea that it wasn't a clean call, like it, it wasn't it wasn't easy to determine whether they would align with the states or mm -hmm. uh, as Franco in Spain ended up going with uh, Hitler and Mussolini because there's a certain similarity in of fascism right so uh, there was this idea of courting the neighbors so as not to have to worry which later morphed into an anxiety over uh communism taking over those countries right well. of course so that's what there was this idea of engaging because there was before then uh the, it was called good neighbor because for example the way that it went with cuba was very violent and and, and perceived as very as an intervention and so this was more about fostering mm -hmm. a friendly policies through culture which is a way that america has continued to 
you know, spread itself around the world. And in this era, you get a lot of, well, you get Carmen Miranda, who was huge, but you also get like Walt Disney was doing a lot of that as well. There are um, a lot of shorts and movies around this time with South American images and characters. I don't know if anyone listening knows The Three Caballeros, which is a movie in which Donald Duck has uh, two friends. One is a Brazilian parrot and the other is a Mexican rooster. And they go around uh, hitting on ladies, you know, hitting on ladies who are basically Carmen Miranda. And it's funny because... Because Zé Carioca, which is the Brazilian parrot, uh, I don't know what he's called in English, but um, he actually became a very popular character in Brazil. Like, I remember when I went there, there were comic strips for Zé Carioca. He is like, obviously, it's not a Brazilian invention in whatever way, but I do think that he was like very much adopted uh, as a thing, which I think is funny, right? Because again, it is it is an American character that was created to represent Brazilians. But yes, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think it's Three Caballeros, but there was another one in which the three of them were, were featured, and Carmen Miranda's sister is in that movie as oh. well singing. Right. I, I will look it up, uh, but there is another movie which the three yeah, of them yeah, are yeah. in. I think they did at least two of those movies, and a bunch of other shorts, I think. But anyway, let's go back to Carmen. She uh, comes to Broadway, and she is a success, right? She comes to Broadway. Well, before Broadway, I think there was like a Boston triad or something that was like a huge success. So she comes to Broadway and, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, not singing in English. She was actually singing in Portuguese at the time. Um, They admired her for that, which I think was the beginning of the thing that ended up turning sour. Uh, Americans couldn't understand what she was saying mm. most of the time because she was thinking in Portuguese, right. sung by sort of a fast-paced genre. Um, and they admired her for that while also thinking that it sounded kind of funny. Um, there is a Daffy Duck short mm-hmm. where he is dressed as Carmen Miranda. And it is it, the comedy of that specific sketch relies on the fact that you can't really tell what he's saying. They thought it was very amusing. There was one song that she sung, um, which was mostly in Portuguese, but it did have a English line, the South American way. And she would pronounce it South American way because the the TH sound is very foreign to people who speak Latin languages. Um, And people thought it was funny because South means, you know, to be drunk. And eventually she learned to say it and they asked her not to change it. Mm. They were like, no, no, do keep saying it the way that you're saying it because it gets a big laugh. Yeah. So it was it was tough. Even then, I think there was there was a, both a genuine admiration. I remember reading that. I don't know if it was Macy's or one of those, like did a whole collection on her. She was like a huge hit. Everyone wanted to be Carmen in New York. However, it wasn't it was like a laughing with slash laughing at. Uh, there was even then this idea of like she looks so exotic and ha 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 we can't even know we don't even know what she's saying and listen to her accent and whatnot Mm -hmm. yeah i um i watched some of her movies in preparation for this i watched specifically the gang's all here which is Mm -hmm. a busby berkeley musical that has one of her most famous um song numbers the lady in the tutti frutti hat which Mm -hmm. is by the way Absolutely crazy uh, number. It's a crazy number. It really looks like a, an acid trip that just yeah. keeps going. Is that the one where the like the trees are alive and then yeah? Um, it is the one in which there's a bunch of there's so many women with giant bananas and they're bananas, doing, bananas. That's what I was thinking about. And they're bananas. and they're doing this choreography and these bananas are ginormous and <laughs> very very phallic. This is like yes, the, yes. 
the you know the undertones there and then she comes on and she has this she has her fruit hat but then the when the song ends she has like there's a painting behind her that makes it look like she has like ridiculous amounts of fruits on her head so it's like a huge like a mountain of fruit it's right. it's a trip and it's you know in its own way it's got problematic elements but also watching it i was like First of all, I was having a lot of fun because it was just so trippy, but also you could tell that she was a great performer, that she is absolutely charismatic, that she has so much energy, you know? In the movie itself, everyone else feels so stiff compared to her, almost. Right, right. She was so funny. She was so physical um, and com like comedic. Yeah, I do, I do think she had that specific talent of like even in her performance there was something fun and alluring about it uh, that captured people so much but also it is true that you know you're bringing up this phallic angle even in the beginning there was a very there was this perceived sexual uh because her belly was bare and her clothes were suggestive uh, and at the end of the day and this wasn't just her there was another there was a mexican actress lupe Verde at the time that was also sort of pegged this way there was this perception of latina women as uh very uh lively which i, I think she couldn't help but live up to just because of who she was but also very sexual mm -hmm. um and i was thinking about this this when, when we think about the accents uh, or stuff like that, there's an infantilization. I've noticed that Americans, and I don't think that's just Americans. I think that's everyone, except it happens a lot in America, tend to perceive accents as a sign of lack of intelligence. People mm. speak to me differently when they hear my accent. I've had trouble with people being like, it's just an accent. It, it, all it means is that I wasn't born here. I completely understand what you're saying and vice versa. But there's sort of this perception of like you're less intelligent. Your intelligence is impaired because because of your accent. And I do think that a lot of attributes that were given onto Carmen reflect the paternalistic relationship between the United States and, and Latin America. And mm -hmm. this good neighbor policy actually having in and of itself a sort of like I am the father I am the I am the the the, the patriarch yeah. <laughs> and these other countries are like this like childish like more dependent um less capable mm -hmm. and I do think that a lot of what made Carmen famous because I completely agree with you she had like obviously an innate sense of performance and and she uh, was a star but she was a star but also a lot of what made her famous had this like sort of dark undertone of like but she's not like the other leading ladies. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like she's got this, she had like a lot of affairs with people, but never really got married to any of the big ones. And so I, th I think that, that, that also sadly was always there. Mm -hmm. She was extremely popular. She was, I read, I don't know if this is true, that at some point she was the highest paid entertainer, female entertainer in America. And yet she wasn't really the protagonist of the movies she was in. You know, people went to see them because of her, I assume, but she was usually in a supporting role. She had musical numbers and then she would have like a the comedic subplots, you know? Right. She would usually be, again, sort of live up to that like, oh, so emotional, so crazy. Uh, yeah. Which wouldn't be a leading lady kind of characteristic. It would be more like, oh, this like the one who doesn't get chosen or the funny side plot character. That I think was also a product of the way that Hollywood at the time, because she did start on Broadway eventually 
even while she was in New York, they sort of filmed a musical number for her. I believe it was in Down Argentine Way, which was her first movie. Um, and eventually she just like decamped to to uh, LA and she sort of escaped Schubert's kind of tyrannical grasp because Schubert knew what he had. And so he was like very, the fact that she couldn't come to Hollywood for the first movie was had to do with that. He didn't want to lose her for Broadway and was still very like possessive. But she ended up trading one for the other because at the time studios had like those contracts where you basically were not free to do what you want. And if, if Carmen wanted to pursue, which she did, other artistic endeavors, she, she was like stuck to whatever studio she had a contract with. And I do remember and from reading this in the biography, eventually she was speaking well enough English that she didn't feel like she had to keep speaking with an accent or, um, and that was never an option for her. That was, that was just not something that was offered. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, because not only speak with an accent, but I think she very purposely is putting on a different accent than the one she had. I, in all mm-hmm. their movies, when they do American, I mean, Spanish-speaking characters or Italian-speaking characters, the thing that they do is roll their R's. And they roll them, like, incredibly uh, unnaturally, in a way that nobody speaks. <laughs> right. But that's just the thing right. that people know about Spanish. Oh, they roll their R's. So everything they right. say is like, this, and nobody speaks right. like that. Like, no, she never had that accent, you know? But she was asked to put it on again and again. It was... It, 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 it's sort of interesting to think about that. In Brazil, again, she was extremely popular regardless of any American or even before any American interference. And that wasn't what made her popular. What made her popular was she was a very good singer and performer. Right. Um, so it's sort of, I, I can only imagine in her mind encompassing this sort of like both what could what could be presented as a quote unquote of graduation to a bigger stage um, where you're like you're talented enough quote, and I'm really doing air quotes here talented enough that you can come into this larger stage in which people are not going to admire you as much uh, or or that or that their admiration for you will be tied to a specific role that you have to play which at the end of the day is not a flattering one mm. um, and I think that's actually something that created for her some a lot of agony especially knowing that the people back home were still watching you know what mm-hmm. i mean and then they would see her um she was usually she was almost never cast as brazilian she would play uh, lots of other ethnic um, nationalities in uh from south america like argentinian or cuban or uh which again sort of speaks to how america thought of latin america of, the, of this countries being the same um and 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 she would defend her movies, which I, I think, as someone, you know, I, I would also do as as I am in them. Otherwise, what I'd be doing them. But there was a lot of anxiety of thinking that the people who originally admire her would would no longer do so because mm-hmm. of this role that she was being forced to play. And I think she got a taste of that when she went back to Rio at some point, right? She was very. Uh, she. I remember she even recorded a song. Well, I'm saying I remember as if it was alive. I remember <laughs> from reading the book that she recorded this song, uh, which means like they're saying that I, I came back uh, Americanized, um, that she was being dissed by people. She was she was booed off the stage of the uh, Casino da Uca, which was actually the casino where Schubert first saw her play. It was like her turf. 
um, and she was booed off the stage uh, because people were like embarrassed of her. Um, and by when I say people, obviously I mean the cultural elite, not like I don't think the people were actually embarrassed of her. As much love as she got coming back because there were like a shit ton of people waiting for her at the harbor. It was like a national happening. The elite was not was like turned off by her. It was mm. like, no, like she doesn't. She, I, I believe she sang a song in English during her performance, and then people were like, "No, that you know, you're now, you're not our Carmen anymore." And her movies were always very poorly received in Latin America, just because they were, you know, offensive movies. They, they were, they were sort of putting all of Latin America in a bag, shaking it, and like throwing it out there. Uh, there was a very little actual preoccupation with understanding the countries that were being talked about. It was more like, yeah, it's all the same. Um, right. And I remember there was this James Bond's movie that we saw when I was a kid. It was so funny. We laughed so hard. Where he's supposed to be, I want to say in Brazil, and he has like a poncho. It's like, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> so like people weren't flattered by that. In that way, it, it didn't work. Right. Um, that sounds like something talking about South America. I kind of recognize that idea of it's kind of this inner fight of like you feeling like you have to make it outside of South America in order mm -hmm. to actually make it as a as a person, as a performer, especially as an entertainer, as a artist. And at the same time, there being a resentment to the people who actually go out and make it, um, be it because they're presenting stereotypes or just because there is a feeling of like, not everybody gets to go and make it, you know? That you're gonna hold them to a different standard or judge them for the sacrifices they have to make, right? Because um, you and I, we grew up in a time where music specifically like a lot of musicians were were making their transitions to america um ricky martin shakir um mm -hmm. and they and they would and they would be i think judge for the adjustments that they had to make for it and in in the one hand yes it's a good thing that's happening all of us would think i mean listen personally speaking when I got into the MFA program here at America, like people were like, I was like, I wonder how they would react if I got to an MFA program like in Tokyo. They'd be like, wow, what a crazy move. You're sacrificing your stable career to go study. But they never said that because I was coming to America. So it was like, mm. oh my God, oh, this amazing thing that's happening to you. But I was like, yes, but there's also the other part where I'm like giving up a sort of like very stable short career to come risk it as a writer. No one's talking about that because <laughs> it's in America. So it is perceived as being this triumph. But yeah, I think they were also beholden to this stricter, sort of judgment for for the sacrifices that it actually took to make it in America. Mm -hmm. and, and and I do think it's sort of like, at least I will say, I feel like that personally. Uh, you don't really feel like you can come back with your held up high if you don't succeed here. Right. So I understand that it is sort of like for her, especially like, no, I came, now I have to make it. And this is what they're telling me I have to do to make it. So I will, but how painful it must be to think, you know, to then go back and people judging you for for those things that you had to do yeah definitely um and and in her case it's also complicated and what it's complicated about so many people who make it outside of south america is that you know in her case we were talking about the bayana costume that she put on i think from what i read she 
put it on for that specific song, but then it became a thing, and then she came to America, and they were like, well, if you're not wearing your fruit in your head, then we don't want you, so put it on again and again. Like, who even are you? Put it on again and yeah. again. It, suddenly, these uh, turbans are being sold at, you know, like you were saying, Macy's and Saks, Fifth Avenue, and, and yeah. for, for hundreds of dollars, and these are the, you know, the outfits of the people from Bahia, the working women, uh, a lot of them black Brazilians, and now it's this whole thing of cultural appropriation. And right, 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 I don't right, know. Right. I suspect that the people who booed her, the elite, weren't particularly concerned about the <laughs> racial <laughs> element. <laughs> but I think there. But I think that applies. Looking back at it, you know, like this thing of like taking something and then selling it back and and transforming it into into something else. It's tough. Yeah, I mean anything that gets mixed up with capitalism, it's it's just really tough. And 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 Carmen is this divisive figure. I can't help but have a lot of love for her, if any, if nothing else, for a self-reflexive quality. I see a lot of myself in her journey. Uh, she mm. she hated that her dreams had like brought her so distant to the place where she was born. Uh, I understand that pain every time I have to, you know, leave my family when I go there for holidays and I have to come back. This sort sort of feeling like, ah, oh, why can't my life just be concentrated? Or like, why can't there be teletransportation? My life would be so much easier. Um, and and feeling in the flesh, this idea that's just, that's a bizarre thing about America. It's this like beacon of light advertising itself all over. But then you come here and people are like, no, you should. You shouldn't be here. You should should go. <laughs> that is a very strange thing to go through. Uh, even mm-hmm. for her, she she came here under the pretense that she was wanted, that that people would want to work with her. And then she gets here, and it's like, yeah, comma, all this shit that doesn't make any sense. But yes, she is both, you know, in that way, hero and villain. I, I do think that her presence here and her fame did do some long-lasting damage, as I was mentioning to you before we started recording. I remember when I when I when I came here, uh, the show Modern Family was kind of happening, um, and one of my c- classmates wrote this uh, spec episode for it, and she cast me as Gloria. I mean, the table read. She was like, "Can you play Gloria?" And I remember, and I played her with a strong accent, and it got a lot of laughs. And later, especially reading this book, I was like, "I wish I hadn't done that." Um, mm. And I remember there was a line in the in the spec that actually bothered me a lot. She, the the Gloria character, the Sofia Vergara character, was uh, speaking to her kid, and she was like, the kid was writing up some poem for some uh, girl that he had a crush on, and she was like, no, in Colombia we don't write poems, we just yell at each other. And mm. I remember thinking like, that's the country where like uh, has a Nobel Prize for literature. <laughs> Yeah. For uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Gabriel, yeah. Gabriel, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So it's like, how can you even say that about Colombia? What a stupid thing to say. And then before showing doing this podcast, I saw the pilot for the episode. To a T, that character is fiery, violent. She threatens one of the moms in the soccer group thing. All the men in the episode, without fail, are attracted to her. The only exception is the gay couple. Mm-hmm. Um, she um, says she talks about her hometown and she's like, well, Colombia, the place where I was born in Colombia is the number one city uh, in, 
And then she sort of pauses and sort of looks at her husband to confirm the word. And she's like, in murders. <laughs> so, she, uh-huh. so she is she is portrayed throughout as sort of like, it's a Carmen stereotype to the T, very feisty, very emotional, very sexual, uh, infantilized. She speaks with a very strong accent that I've heard Sofia Vergara in other situations. And I know that that's not exactly how she talks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is not me judging Sofia Vergara at all. And I understand that in that show, everyone is a stereotype of the character of the playing the suburban mom, the suburban dad. But the problem to me, which is the same problem with Carmen is when you have seven white people playing stereotypes, you don't walk away with an image of what people are. You may walk away with an image of like what the suburban mom is, but there's enough stereotypes to go around the race, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she's the only Latina. And so it's right. tough not to assign that. I even think of my classmate casting me as Gloria. There's a, yeah. I don't think she assumed that I was that way, but there is sort of like, oh, you're one of those. Mm-hmm. And also the thing that you said about reading with the accent is also, that's such an interesting thing. Like, you know, like, would they have found it funny if you hadn't said the lines that way? Would right. Maybe the jokes aren't even funny. They're just funny because you were <laughs> right. putting on a funny voice. Funny because- Right, right. 100%. I do. And I, and I, and I, and I, in that moment, I, I do understand Carmen, you want to get the laugh, you want to get the admiration, you want to do your job, right. Um, and then you stop and think about it for a second. And you're like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end of her life, it, the, the decline of her career was her just like being just so tired of it. So mm-hmm. tired of it all. It really consumed her. She died at 44 years old which is an insane age to die because she was like so hopped up on drugs. She had to take drugs to go to sleep and to stay awake. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I have like such sympathy for her in those moments of like, you're just trapped in the, in your own success um, and you can't really break out of it. She tried to, the movies were not successful. Um, she, she knew what the deal was at that time and she just didn't want to do it anymore. But you know, mm-hmm. you're in America and you're so far away and you don't have the option of failing. Yeah, it's such a, a story that we've heard so many times for people of that time, especially uh, women actors and entertainers, and especially someone who was not an American like Carmen Stones, who was coming from Latin America. And, you know, being trapped between those poles of like, she was a pioneer and she was a star and she deservedly so she was incredibly talented and at the same time she had to put up with all this other bullshit and you know there's a lot to criticize there in the way that the 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 powers that be treated her and treated her culture and and she was probably complicit in some of it and in some ways it's such a tough situation right for sure for sure because again you know I'm back in a classroom. I did the accent. I'm complicit and I could have chosen not to do it. I could have said, no, I don't want to play this character. Why are you even casting me as that? You don't always have the wherewithal to do it, but <laughs> but it is it is tough. Again, I think that she came here not exactly knowing what the deal was going to be. And once you get here, this is sort of the way the game is played. But yes, you do have your personal responsibility on it. Like you said, she, as a white woman, has the personal responsibility of having gone to another culture and saying like, your clothes, I'm going to adopt them into this thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we all, it, it is a, it's sort of like a tangled mess in that way. Um, and I, it is sad to think today that, that the way that we have to bring her up for people to know who they are is to bring up the hat. 
but it's almost inescapable. Like we can't do it. There's a, there's other actresses of the era that we just only have to say their names. Um, people will know who they are. But I mean, mm. as you say, that's not uncommon. If we think, for example, of like uh, Marilyn Monroe, like also trapped in the success that she she didn't want to be that 100% mm-hmm. of the time. In fact, she suffered a lot because people couldn't see past that. Uh, but I do think, but, it, but people do know who Marilyn Monroe is. And I do feel like yeah. it's a shame that we have to refer to her as like the lady in the Tutti Frutti hat for people to know who we're talking about. Yeah. Well, it was great talking about her now. And hopefully uh, the people listening will um, appreciate what we had to say about her. Is there anything else that you would like to say about Carmen before we wrap up? Oh, that's a big, <laughs> it's a big responsibility. <laughs> what are my last awards when it comes to Carmen? Um, I think there's something, I think there's something personal about her that I, I also found compelling is that, like I said, she only got married once. Her biggest, one of her biggest dreams was having a kid. Um, she got pregnant once um, and had to have an abortion because the, her career just would not allow it. Um, and by the time she was actually able to have kids, um, she was married to this guy who like really sucked real bad. <laughs> I think I think she didn't see it because she she just wanted to be married so bad. But like she had enough presence of mind to not actually have a child with him. Um, and so she never had kids, which I I almost feel like you know of course it's tough because she's a woman and 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 of course people would naturally see her as a mother or whatever. But I think this is one of the examples where it actually works in the reverse. Where I'm like, it's so sad that this this small personal dream that perhaps she could have realized she didn't. Um, so you know, whatever you are, Carmen, I hope that you feel more realized now. Yeah, very well said. Lovely words. Um... Do you want to tell the listeners about all of your stuff, where to find you and your writing? Um, well, like you said, I think that well, a lot of my writing is like sort of plays and can't be accessed on the internet. I do think that um, the best thing one could do if they wanted to find me was to would be go to notrealmendoza.substack.com uh, for my short stories. Um, like you so wisely said, uh, once a month. There's a new short story, and then um, around the around two weeks later, I publish an essay about where did it come from. People always ask me that about my writing, so I sort of preempted the question <laughs> and answered it myself. Uh, so yeah, um, or my website notrealmendoza.com, which also links to the Substack. Great, thank you so much for being here. All of those links will be in the description. This was a great episode. I loved talking with you and. The door is open for whenever you want to come back on the show and talk about any other foreign invader. Thank you, Coco. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that's our show. Thanks again to Francisco for coming on to talk about the great Carmen Miranda. You should subscribe to Francisco's Substack. I cannot stress this enough. His stories are great. Do you have any thoughts, questions, or comments about the show? Please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at CocoHitsNY or at any of the links in the show description. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find more listeners. But more importantly, why don't you tell someone about it? Do you know someone who would benefit from knowing more about Carmen Miranda and her life? Perhaps someone who is interested in the history of Latin American representation? 
or someone who's a fan of classic Hollywood. Well, let them know this podcast exists. After all, word of mouth is the best way to support an independent creative endeavor such as this one. Thanks again for listening, and make sure to come back next week when we'll be talking about the most popular video game character of them all. It's a me, Mario. Oh, and I have a feeling you might want to stick around a little longer with this episode, especially if you're a fan of Latin music. Na hora das comidas, eu sou do camarão ensopadinho e com chuchu. So, we mentioned a little bit in our conversation about Carmen the difference between the Latin music crossover of the late 90s and early 2000s and the more recent ones that we're kind of in the middle of. So, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I feel I feel like the first thing is that just contextualizing a little bit like where we were at in music, at least when I was a kid in the 90s, I think the way I perceive it now was that it, an explosion of pop is a as the as the genre that really did sell. Mm -hmm. Um and so you know that's when we had like Britney Spears, which you know <laughs> right now is everywhere because of the recent documentary and her legal troubles. Um and so I do I do feel like even before tackling the Latin aspect, there's an acknowledgement that there was a certain expectation put upon music at that time in order for it to be successful. Mm. Um, I remember that line from the Pink song, the, the first one, Don't Let Me Get Me, where she was like, hate, hate being compared to Britney Spears, sort of like Britney Spears in whatever way and her cadre of Bastric Boys and Spice Girls and whatever sort of set an expectation to what music had to be. Um, yeah. And then, and then you know, and then the possibility was not being that. So I do feel like it's not surprising to me that at least the way I experienced that crossover, um, there was the sort of tampering down of, a, of an artist's, perhaps the thing that had made him famous to begin with in other places that were in America. Um, and, and, and in some cases, a playing up of what they were expected to bring because they weren't American. Right. But I do feel like making songs fun and to a certain degree expressing more generic emotions or, you know, there, there were there's like there was a more limited range of, of, of um, notes. And, and there was certain they do sort of like sound alike. There was an industry. Mm -hmm you know, in that sense of like pumping out that kind of music. Um, and I do think, as we were talking before recording, that Shakira is someone we both sort of identify with. It's funny that when I first met Shakira, <laughs> when, not personally, although I did go to see her show one time, um, there she was a very much a rock singer. Um, she was often referred to as the Alanis Morissette. Yeah, very much so. But in America. And she did. There's the my favorite album of hers, uh, PSS Casos Sueños Blancos. Like it really does sound like Alanis Morissette rock. It's, it's very rock heavy. There's only one song, um, Ojos de Sea, which is more like Middle Eastern mm -hmm. infused. Um, 
it's not really a dancey album. I mean, depending on what you like to dance, but it, but it is really a rock album. There's like a lot of ballads or, or heavier songs. Um, but the crossover album underneath your clothes uh, with whenever, whatever, it did have a substantially more like dance. Like she became famous in America with songs that were more, way more pop. Yeah. Um, and certainly that played off on a bodily expression of them. Like whenever, whenever mm-hmm. was very much about belly dancing um, and hips don't lie. I mean, yeah. hips don't lie, the name hips don't lie already tells you like mm-hmm. what the song is. And, and by the way, it, it is not me taking a shit on those songs. I love those songs. I think they were famous for a That's reason. interesting that you say that because I also have a very, um, I guess say tumultuous relationship with Shakira throughout my life. When I first met her, like you, it was back in the 90s. I was a little kid and it was Pies Descalzos and then the other album um, Donde Están Los Ladrones which um, are kind of listening to them back I remember them being more rocky than they actually are I think actually like true, half, true. half the songs <laughs> we were kids, we were kids so, you know. <laughs> but also half the songs are rock and they're like Alanis Morissette guitars and mm-hmm. very angsty almost also like an Avril Lavigne kind of thing and then the other half uh-huh. are kind of more dancey or ballads you know But when she, you know, crossed over to America, when she did started singing in English, she did whenever, wherever she uh, dyed her hair blonde. That to me was Mm -hmm. a big shock of like, what is happening? You know, like what is happening to this woman who I knew and she's changing so much. And for a long time, I was very like resistant to Shakira because of how she had changed in -hmm. order to cross Mm -hmm. over. And it's not until recently that I listened back to some of that, those songs and that I became honestly more uh, into pop music that is like fun and, and dancey right. that I reckon. Right. Sorry, I, I just stumbled on my phone. <laughs> and she acknowledges that. And I do feel like I remember her saying in an interview saying like pop is so much more permissive than other genres. So you can do a lot more things. And I understand that. I actually do agree that um, perhaps in other genres, like bringing in her Middle Eastern heritage or playing with certain sounds would have not as been. I remember in Piesas Casos, it was like a reggae mm-hmm. song. Yeah. It was kind of popular at the time. Uh, so she always did have sort of that curiosity, but I, I, it doesn't escape to me that in America, certain things succeeded more than others. If you listen to the album, which originated Hips Don't Lie, a lot of their songs are still very like dark or very rock or very soulful. They just weren't famous. Yeah. Like, she she didn't stop doing it. They just like didn't play off. I, I I really followed her for for a while, even after the transition, because because and I do think that this is worth, you know, acknowledging to myself. When you grow up outside of America, American culture is still sold to you as a very desirable thing. And I'm not gonna you know, paint myself as some crusader at the time. N- later on, that sort of died down a little. But at the time, to me, it was cool that Tomo was singing in English. She was like, oh, my God, she mm. made it. Like, there's this, there's this sort of, like, sensation of, like, something good having happened. And I think it's also worth acknowledging, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Like, Ricky Martin was doing it. Uh, there, there, were, there were, there was, uh, Talia, I remember, Talia had, like, a big hit in america with uh fat joe oh that's right with fat joe i remember that and i remember that video so yeah a lot of people tried it there was a big because you know i think ricky martin was probably the the first one and he really it really worked for him at least for a while and i know shakira well enrique iglesias and shakira and uh 
I think Paulina Rubio also tried to do some English. Yeah, there were, and, and I remember actually a sort of like a strange phenomenon. It also happened a little bit the other way around. Christina Aguilera was really popular. She like had a Spanish album uh, right after my reflection. It was called Mi Reflect. Was literally, it was the same like, album. It was just all in <laughs> right, Spanish. Right. In some way, like I remember there were some original songs. She, she did cover some uh, a Manzanero song. But I remember it was sort of funny because to us, for a while, this is the way that the narrative went, um, it had been, you know, she was a Latina artist at Dancing City in America. It, it, it took me a while to like learn that no, actually, <laughs> I mean, she was Latina, but like she had first become famous in English and then she had, right. for, for us, like I remember thinking about the narrative like, oh, she's also a Latina uh, who is like now, oh, J-Lo was another example. Again, again, an example that's not, that's not quite applicable. Mm -hmm, with an asterisk. Uh, but she sung so much in Spanish. There were songs, uh, J-Lo, one of her, her first songs that I knew were all in Spanish. And it was on, and so to us, it was even that was happening. You know, like, oh, J-Lo's singing in English now. <laughs> we didn't even know that that actually hadn't happened that way. But yeah, it was a big thing, this sort of mix of culture. And I do think that they all share, right? If we think of Ricky Martin, his, his big hit being Living La Vida Loca, mm -hmm. there were, I think there were certain expectations of what a Latin, pop song would be yeah and i think certain limitations of what it could be right like you were saying because i think it's not a coincidence that shakira's uh, singles and the songs that were promoted versus the songs that are just in the albums a lot of the time the promoted ones were the more poppy the more dance uh, party music and i think that also contributes to the way i mean goes back to Carmen Miranda as well, like the way that these artists are accepted or seen in America as, I think, I mean, I love pop music and I don't think it should be seen as unserious, but I think a lot of people do see it as kind of superficial, um, you know, um, not to be taken very seriously. And I do, I, I feel like the, pro the quote unquote problem would be an artist wanting to express themselves. It's, a, it's the same common problem. You can do whatever you want. The problem is when you can't, right? Mm. The problem is when you this expectation has been put on you that you then cannot get rid of. I don't. I do feel like later moves in Shakira's career, which I sort of was not as on board with, do where I guess business-wise justifiably based on like, well, we gotta do the thing. Mm -hmm that sales um and this isn't selling so right. you know nice experiments but don't do that again <laughs> um and i do think that it, perhaps in america it's not like it's not like the music industry doesn't have like expectations everywhere of course like even back then i'm, I'm sure that there were things that were like you can do more of this you should stop doing that uh even even pieces casos and on the san lazones sound different from mm -hmm. each other there there were certainly a i like on the san lazones more um but it is true that those are like more fleshed out songs. Like there, there, there was a rawness that was lost um, from one to two. Uh, but I do think that they had more freedom because they weren't seen as Latina. We, we were all Latino. So we weren't like seeing someone necessarily on that light. Whereas in the US, there is that construction, like here's what people want to hear. If you, if you ask anyone here in the United States, what they think about Shakira, like what do they know? It is quite likely that her body, mm -hmm or the sort of rhythms that they expect from her would come into play yeah. when making that judgment. Yeah, totally. I think that's very interesting around, I think around the time of Hipstone Lies, she did this album, Oral Fixation, that had two albums, mm -hmm. one in Spanish, one in English. 
and the reception to the albums was very different. The one in Spanish in Latin America, it was like a big, a huge album and it was big and she was a, one of the major pop stars, artists, whereas the other one and here in America was like, well, you know, hips don't lie. We like that song, but like, you know, whatever with the album. Right. And the rest, it's funny because both of them do stand somewhat in contrast. Auto Fixation is the darker of the two. It has the most rock songs. And um, Hips on Light wasn't even originally in the right. album. It was a later edition when it was perceived that that kind of song wasn't going to play here. And that's so funny because Fijación Oral, which, which I do think is the best one of the two, and I, and I like more, the Spanish one, has like an incredible pop song with Alejandro Sanz, La Tortura, which was like a huge, huge mega huge hit. hit. It was pre-raggaeton raggaeton and it was like just insane <laughs> um and it's it still it was a very well received album like but that was baked into it whereas here in america it's like no we need to add a song to it because that did not play well. i mean and by the way commercially obviously a very good decision hips on life is one of the biggest songs ever not just Shakira, yeah. it's just like a very big and song. it's a great song um do you think that the crossover artists now um they have a different that it's that or that the audience has a different relationship to you know like i feel like despacito maybe was the the nexus point and now we have like bad bunny and j balvin and i think it's maybe a right. little different it's funny because if we think about the two big hits right and i'm saying this as someone who understands music from listening to it on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not speaking from an expert position, but I think it's undeniable. The the two big hits that introduce America to this new wave were Despacito, as you say, which does feel like the more engineered of the two. Mm -hmm. um, it's Justin Bieber, which is a strange fit that somehow made it work. But the other two artists are Luis Fonsi, who is not necessarily known as a reggaeton. Luis Fonsi was the person who was around when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> he was certainly not saying it reggaeton back then. And um, that Yankee, which is like old school reggaeton. Right. Like, I feel like that it's not the it's not the reggaeton that we know right now. That did feel like sort of like the 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 ancien regime making like <laughs> one last yeah, because the other one would be Cardi B's um, I Like It Like That. And that's and that's and those two artists, Bud Bunny and Jay Baldwin, have now become it's almost like we don't even remember that that's where they came from. Right. They did. It, it was a thing where it was less them trying to break in and more Cardi B seeing something happen. And I think that's the difference between the crossover, right? Like the Despacito being like the last one of the old school, it's sort of that thing where they're they're trying to break into the country sort of like adjusting to what they think it's gonna be want to be heard but which way i love despacito i think it's like a band and like, <laughs> i think it's great but uh the, the difference being i think cardi b invited them in sort of like oh you guys are happening you guys are doing something which i think is really cool and you should do they didn't temper themselves down or really change their sound to to break into that like it was just like hey come sing your song <laughs> come sing your bars or my song and i do feel like sometimes i look at this new at this new artist at, at the bad bunnies of the world with sort of like a little envy they, they didn't have to change anything <laughs> they were just like I'm not even gonna sing in english he doesn't like but Bunny does not sing in Android. as far as i know i haven't heard any and and i'm like you you know way back when it was very different people didn't people needed to change a lot